Amen. All right, so just by way of review, what was the significance of the veil in the temple being torn on Good Friday? Remember, the veil's 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 5 inches thick. So what was it there for? What was it symbolizing? Okay, so right, before that, it was a massive symbol of the barrier between sinful man and holy God. And then on Good Friday, was torn from top to bottom, interestingly enough, <laughs> um, by God, so that now representing that we have access into God's presence. So very good. What did Christ's death accomplish that repeated Old Testament sacrifices could not do? And we already... We'll see some more things in 10, but in 9, what was the issue that those sacrifices couldn't do something for our conscience? What was it? Couldn't perfect the conscience. Okay. So couldn't perfect, which means complete or make, uh, not having anything missing. Um, what were three appointments that will not be canceled or postponed whether we're ready or not. So we're in Hebrews 9 toward the end of the chapter. There's three appointments that God has on his calendar that uh, will not be changed. So every one of us is appointed to die once at a certain time. What comes after that? Judgment. Judgment. Nobody's going to be exempt from that. And then what's the third thing that is already on God's calendar? Christ's return. All right. So those are all set. Uh, we don't change those at all. Well, any comments or questions on what we saw in chapter 9? Okay, so just to kind of get us in the framework for chapter 10, what would be some examples of temporary solutions that you make use of until there's a long-term solution or permanent solution to replace it with? So can you think of some examples? Okay, duct tape. <laughs> or scotch tape. All right, so hold something together until you can do something a little more permanent. Any other examples? A safety pin. I'm sorry? A safety pin just to hold something together short term. All right. Engagement. Oh, no, I hadn't thought of that. That's kind of a neat one. It's a temporary arrangement, but, like, for example, 
20 days from now, Caleb and Mikhail's engagement will be done and a more permanent arrangement will be in place. Good, I like that. Uh, two I thought of, one is um, a few years ago on Christmas Day, we had a flat tire on the way to Wisconsin and um, maybe like yours, we just have a donut, this little dinky <laughs> pretend tire and we had to drive the rest of the way to Wisconsin on that, and we were very glad when we could actually get a real tire to replace the blowout and the donut instead of just driving around on this little thing. Another one would maybe be crutches. You know, most people are on crutches for how many weeks does it usually last? Let's say a month or so you know, while the bone is knitting together, but the crutches are designed to be a temporary fix until your bone's strong enough to put weight back on it, and then you don't keep the crutches, you're done with the crutches. So all those are categories of temporary necessity, but not the permanent long-term solution, and then when the long-term solution comes, it's replaced and obsolete, which is what we saw at the end of Hebrews 9, that those old systems are obsolete now that the new has come. So let's start with the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 10. So what could all the thousands of Old Testament sacrifices never do? Purge us, cleanse us, make us perfect. Um, again, the idea of being complete or not lacking anything necessary. Uh, what else couldn't those sacrifices do? Okay, there's this consciousness of sin or guilt for sin and the idea is whenever you went to Jerusalem and you smelled the aroma of burning flesh and saw these gallons and gallons of blood <laughs> everywhere it was a reminder all this is happening because I'm a sinner you just couldn't get away from that <coughs> reminder and so rather than taking away sin once for all and never having to think about it it's like it's always a built-in reminder I'm a sinner and there's it's still there Something has to happen to change that. So any comments or questions on the first four verses? I think it's significant the author says, never could do it, impossible. So it wasn't like it was hard or, you know, and if we tried long enough, it would finally kick in. It's like never, impossible, it's just not happening. Let's read 5 through 10 of Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken
eternal pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, thank you. So the author quotes from Psalm 40, which was originally written by David roughly 1,000 B.C., but who is quoting those words when? Go ahead, Karen. Oh, it looks like you were mouthing the answer. Who's speaking? Christ. Jesus. When does he say these words from Psalm 40? Long time before he became incarnate on the world, on the earth. No. When he comes into the world, what's that? Christmas. Here's a Christmas text. Jesus quotes Psalm 40 and says, that's me. I'm coming. I'm taking on a body. Here's the second person of the Trinity, the incarnation, taking on a body to carry out God's will. So just a fascinating passage that we maybe read Psalm 40 and would not have seen that, and yet the author says, that was Jesus coming to earth, and the reasoning behind his taking on flesh. So what's the point of these verses about offerings and sacrifices? So there seems to be an awareness that sacrifices and offerings are not the final solution for sin, that there must be something or someone coming who can actually take away sin once for all. And Jesus says, I'm the one coming to do that. The, the other things were shadows. We already saw that word before in 10. They're just shadows. They're pointing to the reality. I'm the reality. I'm coming. I'll deal with sin once and for all. So let's just look at a couple texts about it's a person who's coming that's going to do this, not um, sacrificial things. So Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Okay, so this is roughly 800 years before Christmas. But if you were a Jew reading those verses, you, you'd have some light bulbs going on. It's a him, not an it. There's, there's a person coming that's going to take sin on himself, not just 
a sheep or a heifer or some other animal, a person is going to be doing this. I still don't know it's Jesus. I don't know his name yet, but God is going to send a person to do this removal of sin. And let's go to 1 Peter 2, 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Okay, thank you. So there again is, it's our sins in his body. And Jesus says, a body you've prepared for me, I'm coming to earth that first Christmas to bear the sins in my body that animal sacrifices could never take away. Um, and notice it says when he takes, away, he takes away the first, the old covenant, the old system, in order to establish the second or the new covenant. So again, these were all temporary arrangements. Now that Christ has come, he's the final permanent solution, that all those temporary measures are done. We don't go back to them. What does sanctified mean? You see that in verse, where is that? What does it mean to be sanctified in verse 10? Okay, I think we want to stay with the idea of set apart. Set apart from sin, set apart to God, which is also the, the meaning of the word holy. I think we want to be cautious to say made holy. <laughs> um, it's, there is a process of becoming more holy. It's called sanctification, which is also means set apart more and more from what we used to be, more and more to what Christ is like. But it's kind of like we talked about justification last week when a, a judge says a prisoner is guilty, he doesn't make the person a lawbreaker. He's acknowledging the status of that person before the law. When God justifies us, he declares us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. That's a process called sanctification, but justification is you're declared legally right before me and my law. So I want to be cautious to say made holy or made righteous because it, it imports a little more freight than is there, and we can get in trouble there because, for example, our Catholic friends and relatives say it is made righteous. You are infused with righteousness in you, and you cooperate with that grace in you, and that's how you get justification is God starts it, you complete it by your cooperation with the grace God starts because you have been made holy, made righteous. So that's why I'm taking a time out on that, Mark, even though it's, you know, the word holy is great, set apart, but the made part in front is just a little bit more editorial comment on the translator's point than maybe is, is there. So any questions on that? To be, what it means to be sanctified? Okay, let's do 11 through 14. 11 through 14.
Um, no, that's good. Thank you. So what is the contrast between the priest standing and Jesus sitting down intended to express? Okay, good. Um, so I always think of a mom with young kids. <laughs> How often do moms with young kids get to sit down? Not much. Uh, their work is never done. Maybe if a kid's napping, oh, that's when you have to do laundry or dishes or clean the house or whatever. So work's never done. And the priests were like that. Their work was never done. I read somewhere during Passover week, 300 thousand lambs were sacrificed. So if you do the math, where's Scott, our math teacher? Um, Passover week. If you do just 12-hour days, that's uh, 4,000 an hour for seven days in a row, which comes out to one lamb a minute during Passover week. Thousands and thousands of lambs. These priests are just nonstop. Slice their throat, pour out the blood. Next, slice their throat, pour out the blood. Next, all day long. Thousands of lambs. And it never could take away sin. Jesus dies once for all, forever. It's done. It's paid in full. Never to be repeated, never to be added to, it's finished. So just this contrast, these other efforts could never do it, Jesus did it completely. Um, so Jesus, one offering accomplished what? In the verses we just saw, we've seen several things now, but what's, in these verses, what does it say? Okay, he's a perfect sacrifice, and that perfect sacrifice did what for somebody? Permanency of perfection. Okay, so for all, for by one offering, look at verse 14 again. One offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So remember, the law couldn't perfect us, the sacrifices couldn't perfect us, nothing was making us complete and hold before God, and now Jesus has done that once and for all, so that we are perfectly acceptable before a holy God because his, his sacrifice. And so there's the word sanctified again. So those who are set apart experience this being perfected because of the sacrifice of Christ. So any questions on that? So here's a cool illustration. Um, I looked it up this week just to make sure I had the latest version. Um, the fastest supercomputer in the world can do 1.1 quintillion operations per second. So if we were to do one operation per second, it would take us about 32 billion years to do what this computer can do in one second. And so think of it would take all eternity in hell for us to pay for our own sin, 
and it would never be paid off. But Jesus' death on the cross, because he's God and man in one being, has infinite value, and therefore that time on the cross did what eternity in hell could not do. It paid it in full so that it's done. So again, we just should marvel at this. It's like, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing else could ever do it, but it did. And so we're free. So any comments or questions on these verses about Christ's sacrifice? Okay, let's go through 15 to 18 then, please. Thank you. So again, notice the verb tenses. The Holy Spirit also testifies or bears witness. Present tense. He's saying this right now to us. Quoting Jeremiah 31, which he had already quoted at length in chapter 8. He comes back to it again and hits two of the new covenant blessings that we looked at out of the four before. What are the two blessings he mentions of the new covenant? Okay. Good, good. So I now have a new ability and desire to obey God because I have a new heart, new desires. Uh, my heart of stone has been taken out. I have a heart of flesh that's tender and responsive. And then what's the other blessing? He remembers our sins no more. Right. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten forever. So, and then what is this conclusion having quoted those New covenant promises bought by the blood of Christ. What's his conclusion? Okay, good. Nothing more to pay. No more sacrifices to make. No more uh, mortgage payments that Jesus made the down payment, but we're making contributions. It's completely paid by Christ. So there's no place for any other offering for sin, whether that's blood animal sacrifice or something you offer God, say, to help make up for sin. It's like, no, it's only the blood of Christ, and that's enough. Amen, amen. So Lord, we'll hit those verses in January in Romans 4, but that's quoting Psalm 32 in David's confession and saying what a blessed, what a truly happy thing it is to know you're forgiven by God. Any other thoughts or comments on what Christ accomplished? We're going to have a major shift in the book of Hebrews starting with verse 19. So he's really spent a chapter after chapter just developing how the work of Christ the priesthood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, everything about Christ is better than the old system.
and what's his overall goal for telling the original writer, readers about that? The Hebrews were kind of tempted to fall back into conformity. Right. Don't go back. Don't go back. Even though you're getting persecution to go back, don't. You will have something far better. So to go back to you know, my donut example, um, let's say I get a brand new tire, you know, nice firestone with all the little rubber things sticking out of it. And it's like, you know, I just kind of missed that donut. I think I'll put the donut back on instead of this brand new tire. You go, that's dumb. And it would be. And so here's the author here saying, the complete sacrifice of Christ once for all, forever, no more payment, no more anything. Why would you go back to, I think I'll take a lamb to the priest and have him kill it for me, for my sin. Why would you do that? Why would you go back? There's no reason to, and it's insulting to Christ to do it, because it sounds like you don't think his death is enough. It needs to be supplemented. All right. 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 Yeah, v great parallel. Um, a little different original circumstances, but here's this threat of it's Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus keep the laws of Moses, Christ plus dietary laws that the Jews follow. And Paul's saying, don't go that route. It's Christ alone. And if you try to add to it, you destroy it. You've, you've nullified. In fact, he uses that word nullify in, um, well, a couple places. 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There's no point of Jesus dying if you could attain right standing with God by keeping the rules. It's pointless. It's unnecessary. And so don't do it. Um, or later he says, um, there's another place where he just basically says, you undo everything Christ has done if you think you need to do something yourself to add to it or supplement it. Thank you for making that parallel, Tom. Any other comments on the work of Christ before we kind of segue into this new section. I mean, remember the chapters were at least a thousand years after they were, the Bible was written. They're not inspired. So if you were going to make chapter dividers, you'd probably start a new chapter at 1019 rather than this little piece and then start 11 with the Hall of Fame. It's because there's such a big transition from Let's focus on the work of Christ and what that accomplished to here are some applications for us as believers in Christ uh, in light of these truths we've seen about him. So let's go ahead and read 19 through 22 in Hebrews 10.
Thank you. So why do we have confidence to enter the holy place? So remember the holy place is representing God's presence that was so cut off one man once a year for just a few minutes. Now we actually have confidence to go there. And what are the two reasons he gives? That's because of the blood of Christ that purchased our redemption. And what else? That's kind of a past thing. What do we have right now? We have a great high priest. We have an intercessor. We have a mediator. right? And so what are we encouraged to actually do in light of those two things? Draw near to whom? Or, or to God. Draw near to God. So draw near is a phrase that's several times in the book of Hebrews, and it's almost always in the context of drawing near to God in, into his presence. So I have, again, think about this. Here's a holy God whose eyes are too pure to behold evil, and I can have confidence to come into his presence, not fear and trembling, not um, feeling unworthy, even though I am unworthy, but I can actually have confidence because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing for me as my representative and my priest to give me access so I can come with full assurance instead of any distance between God and I, I have drawn near to God with confidence. Any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's do 10.23. Okay, so do you remember what hope is in the New Testament? Go ahead, Angela. Oh, I thought you were nodding your head like. Okay, very good. Or Randy Alcorns is believing that one day, even if today is not today, or even if today is not that day, that God will set all things right. But either way, we, we hold on to that fast or firmly. And the reason we can is because... Yeah, for he who promises is faithful. <laughs> so be faithful because he's faithful. Isn't that an interesting combination? Work out your salvation for he's at work in you. So again, it's God is the one who's initiating, enabling everything, and yet we are still called to pursue different things. So we're called to hold fast, hang on to this hope God's given us through Christ, and the reason you can and will is because he's faithful and he made promises he won't break. So that, again, gives us assurance that God is going to finish what he started. Um, let's look at a couple other texts on that. 
and then we'll do 24, 25. So I'm going to look up 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. So there again, the link between the end result, we're going to be confirmed to the end, blameless when Christ comes back. Why? Because God's faithful. <laughs> he called us. He'll make us complete. He'll do everything. So be hanging on because he's hanging on to us. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. So again, a reference to the return of Christ. What will our status be on that day? Blameless, without blemish, perfect, complete. And it's all linked to he's faithful. He'll bring it about. All right, well, let's end with 24 and 25 of Hebrews 10. Would somebody please read those? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So what does the word consider mean? Be mindful, conscientious of others' um, welfare, spiritual welfare, their needs. Okay, so the word itself is be mindful or being conscientious. Basically, just stop and think carefully, not just casually wing it but be intentional about this. And so what we're intended to be intentional about is stirring up one another. So why is it necessary to stir one another up? Because some of them are Pardon me? Oh, sorry, Hannah, you go ahead. Because some are in the habit of not, or they fall out of the habit. Okay, that's actually coming later. You're right, but... Kind of just in our natural state. We're not going to love and do good works. Right. It's not our default. Thank you. That's a good way to put it. Not our default. We get tired. We get busy. We get distracted. A lot of things happen that would work against us uh, thinking about how to stir up one another with love for love and good deeds or, or actually participating in those. And so we need to be stirred up. But isn't it interesting? It doesn't just say think about yourself and stir yourself up, which would be needed. That would be good. But it's a one another. It's I'm doing this for you. You're doing this for me. We're doing it for each other. So um, 
So what would that look like? What would it look like? Go get Shelly. Good, good. So a couple, again, not to do it this week, but just examples would be, okay, Patrick knows um, a brother in the church who's moving on Saturday. And so he says, hey, brothers, let's get together and help um, on Saturday. So it's not just Patrick wanting to go help, which is good in itself, but stirring up others to love and good deeds to help him, this brother. Or somebody just had a baby, and you get an email that says, let's have a meal train. Okay, That's not just the person who sent out the email bringing a meal, as important and good as that is. It's, I'm going to stir up other ladies in the church to be aware there's a need. This would be a way to meet that need. Join me in love and good deeds for this sister who just had a baby. So it's thinking about needs and then incorporating other people in meeting that need along with yourself. Does that make sense? Okay. How important is meeting together as believers? Very. Very. We'll go with very, yeah. It's very important enough that God says, don't miss it. Don't neglect it. Don't forsake it. It's too important to miss. And I think, I mean, COVID's still fresh enough in our memories, especially those first few weeks where only 10 people were allowed in the building. <laughs> yeah, we had it online, but... More than one person commented, yeah, you can watch online, but it's not the same as being here in person and having fellowship face-to-face. -face. I think most of us tasted what that was. It's like, yeah, there's just no substitute for being here in person and talking with one another between Sunday school and church or after church or just the different interactions we can have. Um, yeah, you can text or, yeah, you can watch something online, but... God designed us in such a way that there's a, a blessing that comes from gathering together uh, and being his fam the tr God's family, God's people, God's Christ's body. There's a blessing there that is unique. You can't have it any other way than being together in person. So any comments or questions or testimonies on that? Just one testimony I'd share would be... Um, one of the summers in college, I worked the graveyard shift at a convenience store. And so my clock got all goofed up of when do you sleep, when do you stay awake. And so I'd come home from work on Sunday morning about 7.30. And my body thinks it's time to lay down and go to bed. Sunday morning. Guess what I did a lot of Sunday mornings? I slept. I didn't go to church. Because I was so tired. Guess what my spiritual life was doing that summer? Because mm. I wasn't in a Christian home, had no Christian friends, I wasn't going to a Christian church. I was all by myself. 
as a Christian, and that's not, the Lone Rangers are dead rangers. So I, as the summer went on, I was like, I can't wait to go back to college and go back to church. Can't wait to be back at church. I miss my brothers and sisters. I miss the fellowship. And so that's just from many years ago, but just having had a taste of what that verse is about. It, there's, there's something God designed for our welfare to be able to join together and gather together in, in corporate times. And then we're not just to be in the same building at the same time. What are we to be doing when we are together, according to that verse? Encouraging one another. So don't just show up and leave and not talk to each other. And don't even just talk to each other about the, the weather or sports. Encourage each other. So where have we seen that before in Hebrews? Okay. Somebody read Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, please. So remember, mutual encouragement is God's means of preserving us in faith instead of falling away from the living God. Or as Dr. Piper put it, perseverance is a community project. We persevere in the faith, and the means God uses to help us persevere is encouraging one another. Okay, So that's what's at stake. It's not just, yeah, it's fun to catch up with each other. It is. But our souls are at stake. The preservation of our souls needs mutual encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's already said it in three, but he comes back and says it again in 10. Don't neglect this. This is too important. You need this. Why aren't we to settle for our current level of mutual encouragement? What day, Lois? Okay, Judgment Day or the Return of Christ, right. So the day is drawing near, so therefore we're to up our encouragement game all the more. So what would be the connection between the day coming and the need for even more encouragement? I can think of at least one text that would help us answer that. So let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Would somebody read 9 through 13?
Sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? People at risk of falling away, love growing cold, persecution, being hated. Not easy to be a Christian in the last days. It's going to get harder and harder. So therefore, we need to encourage each other more and more so that we persevere even though it gets tough instead of bail when it gets tough. So God's means of preserving us in faith even during the persecution that will intensify as we get closer to the end is mutual encouragement because we're together. So anyway, that's, that just seems how this all comes together as far as the, the t why we need to actually increase our level of mutual encouragement. As we're getting closer to the day, we need more encouragement. So any comments or questions on what we've covered this morning? Okay, well, let's wrap it up. And Patrick, would you close, please? Thank you.